All right, good morning, you guys. Uh, uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed, and the youth group, you guys are dismissed, and you guys can all head over there. Pastor Chris is over there ready to get you out of here. We don't care where you go, but just get out of here. No, no. Bless your hearts. It was good to have the uh, youth team with us this morning. It's the fifth Sunday of the month when they usually are, uh, are up, and they'll be up again for us next Sunday. Um, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're awfully glad to have you here. And if you're here every week, we're glad that you're here too. This is a good time to remind everybody to turn off your cell phone if you need to be reminded of that. I know that I do, since uh, it's probably go off each week during the service. Um, we are headed through the books of First and Second Peter. We just finished up the book of Revelation. Last week, we sort of dove in or dived in. We dove in, right? We dove into the book of First Peter. And um, we're headed through the book of First Peter, and we'll go through Second Peter after that, all before Christmas. And we're kind of doing it as more of almost a survey. As you'll see, you probably saw last week, you'll see this morning, um, each one of these chapters could easily be a month's worth of sermons, just to really drill down on the different topics that Peter addresses. And yet, that's a, there's a blessing certainly to doing that. And yet I think that there's a different kind of a blessing that we get when we study a larger sort of a section of scripture, try to do a chapter a week, because it really helps us kind of to, um, to be mindful of the context and the overall themes and the reasons that the letters were written. So that's how we're approaching that. That's why each of the sermons this month are going to be two hours long. So um, this is when all the visitors run out the door. No. I'm going to talk super fast. So um, anyway, you can uh, be finding uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, um, raise your hand and we will give one to you, either to use for the day or to take with you. You can certainly use the Bible on your phone. Um, I'm teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along uh, in that version. Um, as we get started this morning, let's just pray and really ask the Lord uh, to bless our time uh, in his word today. So, Father, we do thank you for um, the opportunity, Lord, the privilege, really, to be here and to gather together as your people. Lord, we thank you for this place that you have provided for us to be able to do it uh, so comfortably, Lord. And we pray that as we go to your word, Lord, as we pray each and every week, that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, that you would open our hearts to hear those things that the spirit would speak to each one of us. Lord, we know you want to speak to us individually, Lord. We know that you desire to speak to us collectively, and we want to be open and receive all that you have for us. And so we pray you'd bless this time, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And we saw last week in chapter 1 that it was kind of on the eve of what would be the greatest persecution that the Christian church would ever know, that Peter, right, our fisherman turned disciple, turned apostle, the apostle of hope, writes this letter to these infant church fellowships located in what would be the Asia Minor region of the Roman Empire. And he wrote to them, we saw specifically, to bring comfort and to infuse hope into their lives, these Christians that were struggling there during the first century. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter's really writing to prepare them for this wave of trials which would be unlike any which they had ever faced. And he wrote to them to encourage them that even in the midst of these trials, for them to just keep their eyes fixed on the Lord. And what an important word to these brave new believers in these infant churches, as well as to struggling Christians, perhaps like some of us, down throughout the centuries. Because really, one of the most valuable things that we can have when we are in the middle of these kinds of trials that they found themselves in the middle of, those kinds of trials where you can just become completely, completely disoriented and you don't know up from down and you just don't know left from right, but it's when someone can come into our lives and begin to just speak truth to us to really help us to reestablish our perspective 
in life so that we can have some instruction and we can have some direction to navigate through what we're going through. For someone to come alongside, really just take us by the hand and walk through that, giving us that critical perspective. Of course, instruction is always valuable, but it's a hundred times more valuable to us. Oftentimes, we're more open to it when it's when it, we're in that kind of a situation. And that's really what First Peter does, right? It gives us instruction, perspective. When we find ourselves in the middle of these kinds of life and death trials, that's why these letters are so precious to so many believers. This morning, we're going to see, as Peter continues this powerful encouragement, he's going to use a number of different kind of word pictures to really help us preserve our perspective during trials. And when we last left off at the end of chapter one, remember Peter had just reminded this group of struggling believers that they had experienced this brand new birth. And it was this supernatural event that then made it possible for them to walk and to live in hope during trials and in holiness before God and really to live in harmony with other believers. And he said that this change in their lives wouldn't fade away. He said because it had taken place or they had been born again through the power, you remember, of God's word, which he said is imperishable. It's just like our inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. And he finished off by saying that it was the word of the gospel that first brought us into this new life. And in that same way, it's going to be through that same power of the word. That's going to be the thing that's going to see us through the times of trial and the times of difficulty, right? It's the word. It's God's promises for the future. That's what gives to us and that's what maintains in us that perspective of eternity. And it's because of this now, because he knew that this is what would see us through, now he's going to encourage us next about the word and about all of the different heavenly realities that it describes, right? And he's going to do it in this first of what will be four of these powerful word pictures. He says that we should hunger for the word because we are newborns in the family of God. Look at verses 1 through 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. gracious. So just as we were conceived by this incorruptible word of God, he says, now as newborn babes, we should continue in that same word of God, that we should be hungry for it. Now, some of you parents may remember this time. I remember back as we prepared for the arrival of our first baby, Abigail, as we were reading and as we were studying, which of course you have time to do before the first baby, right? And the rest of them, it's just kind of make it through. But I remember just being amazed to learn that a newborn needs milk about every hour to hour and a half. And of course, all new parents know that that's absolutely true, right? Because their tummies are so tiny that they just can't hold much more than that at one time. And so in order to keep growing, they need to eat and they need to eat continuously. And of course, they need milk that's pure and that's healthy. And so Peter says that we're to be the very same way in the way that we hunger for God's word. It's probably not our tummies that are so tiny, right? It's our brains that are so tiny. We need to feed on it constantly to be nourished. Notice he doesn't say if we're newborn babes or while we're newborn babes. What does he say? He says that we're to continue to have this same hunger as newborn babes, right? To crave this kind of pure nourishment of the word, no matter how long it is that we've walked with the Lord. 
Right? We, of course, are, are, we need to mature and we need to grow in a spiritual sense as we continue in the Lord. But that hunger that we have for the pure milk of the word, that should never change. And can I just say that this is especially important when we're faced with severe trials. Because it's then that we need that nourishment to maintain that perspective. That perspective, as he says here, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is gracious. Of course, with a newborn, the, the doctors know and parents know, we know that a baby's doing well, right? We know that they're healthy and that they're growing. Why? Because they're hungry. And what that tells the doctor is that all of the little tiny inside parts are working well, that there's a, a flourishing life there. And in the very same way, one of the evidences of the presence of a, a healthy spiritual life, it's that hunger for spiritual food, and that's the word of God. And I love what Peter does here, because here again we have this untrained, unlearned fisherman who had been simply hanging out with Jesus. He reaches back into the scriptures and I think there's a beautiful reference here to Psalm 34, where David writes, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He said, blessed is the man who trusts in him. And I think that the sense of Peter's statement here in these verses is that once we have tasted of the Lord's blessing and his goodness, we're going to want to put away all of those old sins of the flesh. Right, those, the slow simmering kind of anger of malice and the deception of guile, the divisiveness of hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. We're going to want to put those things away and instead really cultivate this appetite for the word of God. And let me let you in on a little secret. Okay? Because the degree to which those kinds of things Right? The degree to which those sins are still present in our lives will be the degree to which our hunger for the word will be diminished. And that's why, notice very carefully, Peter says here, we're to lay them aside. We're to make a conscious choice to choose one over the other. Right, think about it this way. No matter how much I'm looking forward to what we might be eating for dinner at home, if I swing through McDonald's on the way home, right, and I grab a number one, right, I score a Big Mac with some large fries, and then I probably would supersize the whole stinking thing, right? If I do that, then by the time I get home, I simply will not be hungry for what it is that we're having. And so often it's, it's when we notice that we're not as hungry for the word of God, it's probably because we've been feeding and filling up on the junk of the world. And this, again, is never more important than when we're in the midst of a severe struggle or a deep trial. Because our tendency at those times is to do what? We want to run for a quick fix. Right, drive through for a quick fill-up on the latest study or the newest thinking out there. But so often those things are, are nothing short of like putting poison in a baby's bottle. Here's what Paul says. In, to the Colossians he writes, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Because all of these kind of modern fixes and the latest thinking, they can so easily rob us of the mind of Christ. Right? They cloud our thinking with all of these unbiblical principles, which is why Peter says, first, lay aside all that junk and then you'll really desire the milk of the word. God wants us to grow healthy and to grow strong. And we're going to see, though, it's not just for our own well-being, but it's because we are part of a much bigger picture. We're part of a, a greater purpose. And so next, Peter not only says, are we newborns in the same family? Now he's going to go on to sort of give us this example that we are stones in the same building. In fact, we're stones in God's temple. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So believers, right, each of us, we are living stones built on the living stone, Jesus. And together, Peter says, we all form this spiritual house or a temple, really, for God's glory. And this is great because back in chapter 1 and verse 3, remember Peter introduced us to that idea of a living hope. Then later in the chapter, he talked about the living word. Now here he refers to Jesus as the living stone, right? A stone that has life in and of itself and then gives that life out to others. We are all called and we're privileged, we're even exhorted to enter into these intimate personal relationships with this living stone. And it's as we do that, that he then imparts his life to us. Peter says here, building us up into a spiritual house with all of these other stones that are around us so that we'd be equipped and prepared, not just for heaven eventually, but also for the work of the ministry here presently. Peter says it's the work of priests, which remember in the Old Testament was twofold. The job of a, of a priest was, first of all, to represent God to the people, and we do that through our lives and our witness, but also to represent the people to God, right, through intercession and through prayer, just those things that we see Jesus do as our high priest. So we are a part of this building that God is building, right? This is the church, right? It's that dwelling place of the Lord. It's this meeting place with the Lord. Remember, in those days, the temple was the place to meet with God. And so in the same way, our lives, right, as God now has his people spread out all over the world, but each one of us personally and all of us collectively, we become this place now where people can come to us and meet with God. They can come into connection with God. Now, this whole idea of us being living stones, being built up or fit together in this spiritual house, it brings to mind, I think, what is a most interesting but also a very instructive scripture. Because in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 6, it describes the construction of Solomon's temple there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it says, and the temple when it was being built was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. You see, when they were constructing this temple on what they considered to be that holy piece of ground, all of the chiseling and the hammering and the cutting and the chipping, that was to be done according to the blueprints, right? But it was to be done in another location. It was to be done off-site somewhere, deep down in some quarry, from which they would then bring the stones so that when those finished stones were finally taken to the Temple Mount, that they could all be fit together perfectly and fit together peacefully in perfect silence. And so in this picture, we see that we are these living stones being fit together here on earth, ultimately for an eternal temple up in heaven. And so this life here is really like life in the quarry. And that explains why we always feel like we're being chipped at and chiseled away. Because so often, it's exactly why we think the stone next to us is rubbing us the wrong way, right? We ask, well, why am I married to this blockhead, right? Why is he so rough around the edge, and, or why is she always poking at me, right? Well, you know why? It's because we, as living stones, constantly are rubbing against one another, knocking the rough edges off of each other in the process. 
And you can be sure that God has put us right next to the very people that he knows will smooth us down so that he can then build us up into a temple that really brings glory to him. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it is a spouse. Sometimes it's a family member or a boss. Sometimes it's even your stinking pastor, right, who's always rubbing you in the wrong way. And yet the problem is, for each of us, is that we all want to try to get away from that blockhead that we're rubbing against. Right? But because God puts us in these fixes precisely to fix us, right? he puts us in positions and he puts us into situations, specific situations, that he knows will shape us most effectively. And the point of all this is that if I try to fix the fix that God put me in, you can bet that God is just going to be faithful to put me in yet another fix to fix the fix that he wanted to fix in the first place. Want me to say that again? I don't think that I could. If we don't learn this, what happens in our lives is that we just go from fix to fix until we finally get to that point where we say, okay, Lord. I'm not going to try to fix this or to wiggle out of that, but I'm simply going to embrace and accept where it is that you have me because I know that you are doing a work on me and that you are just shaping me for eternity. Because I know that I am just part of this tremendous building project that you are doing that is so much bigger than just me. It's that building project, that city, as it says in Hebrews 11, which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. There's a great story that's told. I have no idea if it's true. It's probably just one of those pastor stories. But it's told about a man who was walking through town, and he was so discouraged. And he started, he sat down, and across the street, he started watching this worker who was working in front of a church. And this man was just working and working, and he was shaping this one piece of stone. He was chiseling here, and he was smoothing there for hours, it seemed, down there on the sidewalk. And so finally, the man who was watching approached the worker, and he said, why in the world, what are you doing spending so much time on that one stone? And the worker said to the man, well, I have to get this stone shaped perfectly down here so that it will fit perfectly up there when it's time. And of course, he pointed to this spot at the very top of the tall church steeple where that stone was supposed to fit. And it's important for us to remember that God has a spot where we each fit, but we need to be fit to fit in that spot. Right? We're being built up as a spiritual house. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter. He promised him on this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so what Peter does next, talking about rocks and talking about stones, he very clearly identifies that it's Jesus, right? Not Peter, as some denominations would tell us. Jesus is the rock on which this whole building is being built. In verses 6 through 8, Peter's now going to kind of marshal some Old Testament support about this stone, and he's going to use three different passages to do it. He says in verse 6, Therefore... It is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So Peter refers back to Isaiah 28 and to Psalm 118 and to Isaiah 8 to confirm God's plan that Christ is the stone and though rejected by men that he is precious to us who believe in him. And... 
to encourage these suffering believers that all of those unbelievers will stumble over that stone now and ultimately they're going to be crushed by it. Now there's one word there in verse 7. If you don't circle it, at least make a note of it. It's the word rejected. And imagine how that word would have hit home for Peter's audience because here you have a group of Christians. They are a persecuted minority at this time in the Roman Empire. They are being actively rejected for their faith. And so with this word and with all of these scriptures, Peter's reminding them, he says, look, don't be overly concerned about the world's rejection of you because you are in very good company. Remember, they rejected the Lord Jesus, and so you are just like him. No matter what man thought of him, they didn't have the final say. Right? All that mattered is what God thought of him. Not what he was to them, but what he was to God. And it says here that he was chosen and that he was precious. Again, it means to be of extreme value or really priceless. And so you also, he says, because of our faith in the Lord, we may be rejected by the world, he says, but we are precious to God. Right now, there, there's an old, interesting tradition told by the rabbis that it's told that during the construction of that temple that we looked at in 1 Kings 6, that the preparations up on the Temple Mount were going smoothly with the preparation of the site until the builders were finally ready to actually begin the assembly. And they were unable to locate the cornerstone. Right, the cornerstone, that first stone that's to be set in place. It is the visible support on which the rest of the building relies for strength and stability. It's the stone by which all of the other stones are measured and they're set in their proper place. But they couldn't find it, and so they sent word down to the quarry to send up that missing stone. But the workers in the quarry sent back word, hey, we sent that up a long time ago. And so the builders were very puzzled until one of them remembered that there was this kind of a strangely cut stone which they didn't know exactly what to do with because it didn't look like they expected it to look. And so it had been tossed over the side of the Temple Mount into the, really the trash heap in the Kidron Valley. And it had to be located and hoisted back up onto the Temple Mount so that they could continue with the construction. Now, the rabbis tell this story to show a fulfillment for this prophecy. And yet, of course, Peter knows what we know is that Jesus is the fulfillment for this prophecy. In fact, here's a fun fact for you Bible scholars. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It is the most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. It is referred to or quoted directly seven different times by five different authors to demonstrate the way that Israel missed their Messiah. They missed God's deliverance. They missed Jesus because he didn't look like they expected him to look. And so this rejected cornerstone is this biblical illusion that shows up again and again throughout the scriptures, but it can also show up over and over in our lives. When we look and we say, look, I just don't see how this possibly all fits together, or this couldn't actually be his plan for me, this situation seems impossible, let's just throw in the towel. But the same thing happened to Jesus, right? They scoffed at him and they said, how could this carpenter, this peasant, how could he be the Messiah? He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have any followers. He has no credentials. Let's just get rid of him. And of course they did. And yet we know that from the foundation of the world, Jesus was and he is the cornerstone of God's plan for the redemption of all mankind. That's what God wanted. 
He wanted a religious and a spiritual kingdom that was related to and that was all measured off of his son Jesus. And yet they rejected him. And it doesn't take an architect to understand that you can't reject the cornerstone in any building and hope to end up with any kind of a building. And because of this, the Jews now had nothing. And that's precisely why when we get to AD 70, the whole thing, right, both the temple building physically, both the religious system spiritually, it would all be completely blown apart, dismantled, if you will, stone by stone by the Romans when they went in there and they leveled the city of Jerusalem and every stone in the temple. And understand that the very same thing that God wanted for the, the Jewish religion is the same thing he has, his plan for our life. We as believers are called to trust in Jesus in the very same way that a building rests on and really relies on its cornerstone. So that every single thing in our lives, every other stone in the building of our lives Right, that building that God is building in our lives personally or a situation in our lives specifically, it has to all be perfectly in right relationship with the cornerstone of our lives, Jesus. So it's in all of those situations where we just can't figure things out and we're tempted to just kind of toss out this oddly shaped stone, whatever it is, instead of saying, look, let's just trash this. Let's just dump him, right, or dump her, or let's just bail on this whole thing. Instead, we need to be people that in these kinds of situations can stay instead. You know, this thing that I don't understand, this could well be the chief cornerstone that God wants to use in my life to set everything else. It doesn't fit with my thinking. It doesn't work according to my calculations, but somehow... Even as Jesus was rejected, this could very well be the key to what God is doing in my life. Because God has a special plan. He has a purpose that he's accomplishing in us. And it's so much bigger than what he's doing in us because it really is all about what he wants to do through us. Because as Peter goes on now, not only are we newborns in the same family, not only are we stones in the same temple, not only are we priests within that temple, but he goes on now to show that we are citizens of an entirely new nation. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So as a living stone in this spiritual house, we, the church, Peter says, we are the people of God. That's awesome. We could get like people of God t-shirts, although it's probably the name of a cult somewhere, but it's biblical, right? We are the people of God. And, you know, we can say, okay, you know, maybe my neighbor won't talk to me and maybe my family has rejected me, but I know that I am now a part of the people of God. I know that I had not obtained mercy, but now I have obtained mercy. I'm part of this new holy nation. And because Jesus is our king priest, we who now follow him, we are part, Peter says, of this royal priesthood. We had no hope, now we have a living hope based on this living stone. Now remember this, many of these believers to whom Peter's writing in the first century, they had come out of a Jewish background but they had been separated first from the temple. They had been banished 
from the synagogues. They had probably been blacklisted from all of their family and their friends, their social circles. Th those things had been taken away from them because of their faith in the Lord. Now they're anticipating this incredible persecution because of that faith. And so Peter's coming in now. Notice the way he is just stacking up, right, row upon row of all of these blessings of God and he's weighing those against the rejection of the world because we're living according to truth. And some of you who are here this morning, I have no doubt that maybe you are paying a tremendous price to be faithful to the Lord. Whether it's in your marriage or in your home or in your neighborhood or where you work or wherever it might be. And Peter is saying, yeah, I know you've given up so much, but God has given you so much more. He has given us even greater things to replace all of that. He has made you the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by God Almighty in a way that the temple itself only knew for a very short period of time. He says we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And so he says, yes, you've experienced rejection, but God will never allow that to have the defining say in our lives because we now belong to him. Simply put, we are special. And that word special in verse nine is a very specific word that means for one's own possession. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul says that we are God's purchased possession that through the blood of his son shed for us on the cross, that God has in his mercy purchased us back from that dark future that we had. Peter says here that now as children of the light, we're called to walk in the light so that our heavenly father's light can be seen in our lives, right? We're to serve as witnesses to the glory and the grace of God, Peter says, so that we would proclaim his praises as now we walk in his light. And we do it in a way that looks different and in a way that might seem strange to all of those people who are still in darkness. I, I love the King James Version. It translates the word special people there to what? Peculiar people. And I have to say I kind of love that because we should be a peculiar people. Right? As the unsaved world around us watches us live and they say, man, these people are strange. These people are peculiar. How can they live in that way? How can they love each other in that way when they always seem to be rubbing each other the wrong way? Right? Our witness to the world should be unlike that of the world. People should think that the way we conduct ourselves is not of this world. And so now I have to say, this is where Peter's great encouragement takes kind of a sudden and a little bit of a sort of a sharp turn. You may have heard it said as you've studied through other New Testament letters that doctrine always leads to duty or that who we are determines how we live. So because we've been set apart, because we're being shaped by God, built up into the spiritual house and raised up as these priests so that we could accomplish this work of God in the world, to do that, we need to be different than the world. And so now he's given us this wonderful outline of all of these heavenly realities, right? All of the blessings. Now he shifts gears to highlight our response to that which is our earthly responsibilities. Right, look in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So now he's going to start talking to us as Christians about how to silence the slander and to silence the criticism that was coming against them and that probably is coming against us as well. Right? As believers, in light of this heavenly position, right? in light of the fact that we are earthly pilgrims, he says, first and foremost, we need to be living in purity before those around us who we know are watching us. Right? And the way to do that is with a holy life. 
That is the best way. It's not to get in people's faces, but it's simply to live a holy life. And that begins, he says, with abstaining from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. So notice what Peter's done. He's been talking about all the trials and the persecution and the rejection which would come from around them. Now he shifts gears and he really starts to talk about the potential danger that still is lurking inside of them. And he says, I beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you, stay away from these fleshly lusts that war against your soul. And we mentioned it quickly last week. It's often during these times of difficulty when people are most prone to say, you know, why should I refrain? Why should I abstain? I just can't cope. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to take this thing that's just going to help me to feel better. And yet to that, Peter says, even as things get tough, don't give in to these fleshly lusts. Don't give in to the weakness of your flesh. Now, today, when we think of lust, we think of it and we talk about it always as something sexual. In fact, it's almost exclusively sexual. But that's not at all the way it's used here. It includes that, but it means so much more than that. It simply means any strong desire or a driving desire, a controlling desire for something. So Peter says we need to abstain from any desire for anything that's forbidden in the word of God. He says because these things war against our souls and we will pay a terrible price for failing to do that because they will chip away continuously at our souls, slowly but steadily. So that's why Peter doesn't say, just know when to say when. He doesn't say, try to refrain temporarily. He simply says, abstain completely. Now why, Peter, do we need to be so rigid? Well, because the Greek word that's translated war here is stratuomai, and it's where we get our word strategy. So with that said, the way that that verse renders is it talks about fleshly lusts which strategize against the soul. And the reality is our enemy Satan has a strategy. And the strategy is to war against your soul, you know, your personality, your emotions, your will, your, your very volition. And the strategy of Satan is simply to say, you know what, total abstinence, that's just too old-fashioned. That just sounds too legalistic. It's too unrealistic. It's too harsh. You know, just know your limits. You can go there. Just don't go too far. After all, What could be wrong with just a little malice, a little guile, a little hypocrisy, a little envy, a little evil speaking, right? Just to pull from the list in verse 1. And the thing for us to remember is Satan won't always come blasting into your life with a drug dealer in tow or some sort of a free anonymous membership for a porn site or a gift card to the liquor barn or a chance at some illegal financial windfall. His strategy is much more subtle than that. He simply wants us to compromise just a little. But he wants us to do it a little here and a little there until there is nothing left of our purity and we start to look just like everybody else because we're living just like everybody else. See, the problem with lust is not only that it wars against us, right? not just that it tears us down as it kind of wears us down, but also that as we succumb to it, our testimony before the world is completely dismantled. We as Christians, we need to abstain from these sinful desires, not just because it's good for us spiritually, but we need to do it in order to maintain that effective witness before an unbelieving world. Look what Peter says in verse 12, we're to do all of this having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day 
of visitation. You guys all know that it's true. The unsaved world watches us as Christians. And they watch us to see if what we say is true and to see if this God we say we serve is really real. And so we need to live lives that are above reproach so that eventually, as people look at us, they start to believe the reality of what we say. Understand that Christians during this time were greatly accused of crimes in the early church. The pagan people said that at communion that Christians were somehow eating the flesh and drinking the blood of a baby in some sort of a cannibalistic ritual. They claimed that a Christian agape feast was really a wild orgy. So I'm glad Pastor Chris clarified what we're going to be doing at the agape feast coming up. They said that Christians were antisocial because they wouldn't participate in all of the immoral entertainment of the day. They said that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship pagan idols. And yet over time, it became clear that Christians were anything but immoral people because it was shown by their lives. So a biblical Christian lifestyle is such a powerful means of convincing the world of the reality of our faith and also of convicting the world of its own sin, right? As Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you're into evangelism this morning, which we all should be into evangelism, that's great because Peter makes it very clear that it's our good works Right? Our good witness, those things that we do to lead holy lives, especially as we do them in the power of the Spirit, those are the things that can help lead the lost to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So that then they too will praise God on the day that he visits them, right? the day of their visitation, the day that he visits them and saves them. And they will thank him and they will give him glory for our testimony, which helped to open their eyes to the reality of him. Did you ever think back to all of those strange Christians who you knew before you became one? You think back to how they were always so full of joy and they were always running around like praising the Lord. We thought they were weird then, but now we thank the Lord for them, don't we? because we understand. There was a girl who worked with me just after high school and she claimed to be some kind of a born again or whatever that was, right? And we would, I I just couldn't figure her out because she was so different than the rest of us. We would all be complaining, but she was full of joy and she'd constantly say, well, praise the Lord, right? We were all exhausted, but she was full of energy. We would hate this individual, particular person, and she would simply say, well, bless their heart, right? But there was something about her. There was something, even at that point, in my darkness, there was something I knew that she had that I didn't have. And it wasn't until so many years later that I realized it was Jesus. And even now, I think of her, and I'm so thankful for her, and for just that quiet witness that she lived before us. We need to live lives that are above reproach and that are contagious in that same way so that people would see Jesus in each one of us. And yet here, I have to tell you, is where this gets really rough. Because now Peter goes on to say that our responsibilities are not just spiritual, but they're civic as well. He says in verse 13, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And we say, whoa, wait a minute. What happened to that whole, like, our citizenship is in heaven kind of a program? I like that one better. 
Well, as pilgrims and strangers, right, as aliens and exiles, we might think that we, not have, we don't have any responsibilities to human government, but Peter tells us here that we have an even greater obligation to obey earthly laws because of our heavenly standing. Right? We are to silence our enemies by being the greatest group of citizens in any nation in the world that we live in to be obedient to the laws that are passed, even though sometimes we might think that they're unnecessary or that they're even arbitrary or that they are even unjust. And though we might not respect the men and women who hold the office, right, and who have this authority, we need to respect the offices and obey the laws for the Lord's sake. Right, we do it to honor God because he himself is the one who ordained human government. And we say, wow, these verses are rough right about now. You know, usually I say underline a verse. This time we want to cross the verse out, don't we? And yet we can't do that. And yet here's the thing is that all of this becomes better when we start to understand the spirit behind which the Holy Spirit, through Peter, makes this strong exhortation. Look at verse 12. He says that we want our conduct to be honorable as a witness to the unbelieving world. Then in verse 13, he says, therefore, follow the rules. We follow the rules to maintain our testimony for the Lord. Here's a silly example that hopefully won't get me in trouble with half of you right now. What do we think when a car with a Christian fish or with some other sort of a Jesus sticker blows by us on Highway 85 going 95 and weaving in and out throughout traffic? And if it makes us angry, imagine what that does for a non-believer. They think, well, those Christians, they think the rules don't apply to them. Or those Christians, they say they're one thing, but they're no better than anybody else. I can tell you one thing. If Jesus did take the wheel, he'd slow it down a bit. Amen to that? We as Christians need to observe all of these man-made rules and laws carefully as long as those laws do not clearly conflict with the clear contextual teaching of the scriptures. Peter says in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. Understand, Peter says, there is a higher purpose behind your obedience. We're not to say, hey, I serve God, so I don't need to obey you. What we should be saying is, I obey you because I serve God. Verse 16 can be a confusing one. I like the way New Testament scholar J.B. Phillips renders it. He says, as free men, you should never use your freedom as an excuse for doing something that is wrong, for you are at all times the servants of God. So the controlling principle for our behavior is that we're servants not of the government, but of God. And if we, as bond servants of God, if we live like that, then our relationships with the, the governmental or the civil authorities, they're just going to follow fall right into place. Now, I'll say this, and this is all that I will say. If we're confronted with an issue which we think violates our faith in God and asks us to act in a way that's contrary to the word of God, as we saw with Peter himself, right, in Acts chapter 4, when they forbid Peter and John from preaching the name of Jesus, if we start to see those things happening, and we seem to see them happening more and more, then we can oppose it, right? Peter and John said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we need to oppose it legally, we need to oppose it respectfully, and we need to be prepared to accept the consequences for our opposition. Because our freedom, right, our liberty isn't a license to live above the law. 
Right? Our heavenly citizenship doesn't negate our earthly responsibilities. We need to live under the law as unto the Lord to maintain our testimony. Whether we're talking about masks or mandates or wherever it is that this is all headed. Now, if this is confusing and if this is complex, Peter's going to close out this whole section with a very simple four-point summary of Christian citizenship. Look at verse 17. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This makes it pretty simple, right? Maybe more t-shirts, right? Especially as Peter's third point here covers all the other ones, as Christians, we need to fear God. This isn't the kind of fear like living in terror but it's living in a sense of awe and a reverence that then leads to our obedience. We're never truly going to honor people or love people or the authority that's placed over us unless we're reverencing God in our hearts. Because as we're rightly related to him, we're then going to be rightly related to all those around us, even those who treat us unjustly. And look at the way that Peter speaks in the next few verses. He's going to speak specifically to household slaves who were saved and were members of these local churches. He says in verses 18 through 20, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So just a quick note, it is interesting, it's important to note that neither Peter nor Paul ever attack slavery as an institution. It was a common practice in that day in virtually all cultures. It was also a very different institution than what we know of in our own history. But rather what they do in all of their writings is they simply rise above all of that and they just encourage slaves to be devoted Christians even within it. And so we can apply these very same principles to us today as workers. We're called to show submission and reverence to our employers, even if they're sometimes unreasonable, harsh, and hard to get along with. I know in talking to so many of you that it is becoming more difficult by the day to be a Christian in a secular workplace in this country. As we see the protections that we once enjoyed to freely express our Christian faith, they're being challenged and eroded and replaced with public policy and private policy, which seems to protect every other expression of every other thing except faith in God, except the defending of right and wrong as it's defined in the word of God. And so we do find Christians are increasingly starting to be singled out and to be silenced and even to be targeted and persecuted in different ways. And the easiest thing for us to do, that natural fleshy thing, is to fight back because it isn't fair. And we want to fight fire with fire. You're nasty to me? Well, I'm going to be nasty to you right back. But Peter seems to indicate that is absolutely the wrong approach. Peter says, look, anybody, whether they're saved or they're lost, they should bear up under it if they're being punished for something that they did wrong. But it's when we can continue to bear up when we haven't done anything wrong, he says that's special. That takes a new nature that we have as Christians. Think about this just for a moment, not in our context, but in the context of the people to whom Peter was writing. These were slaves there trapped in an unjust institution who were very often treated as less than human. There was no OSHA. There was no Constitution. There was no Bill of Rights. There was no union or any other organization to protect their rights. And yet Peter instructs them to submit to their masters, and even to honor this king who was this madman lunatic who was attempting to annihilate them. Why? Because he said it would bring glory to God as they did it. Here's how this works for us. 
Sometimes someone can mistreat us in a kind of an employee kind of a situation and we can be singled out for our faith and everyone around us sees it and everyone around us knows it. But if we take it and we accept it as unto the Lord and we simply move on from it, people notice that. And what it becomes is it becomes a testimony to the fact that we are about something higher something bigger than what the average person is about. Because the one who we serve is so much different than what other people serve. That's our perfect example who Peter mentions here now in verse 21. He says, for to this you were called, so called to suffer unjustly, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Peter points them, and he points us as well, to the one who suffered more unjustly at the hands of humans than anyone else in human history. So how did Jesus do it? Right. What was his secret? Well, it's right there at the end of verse 23. And it's so important, I want you to underline it in the Bible of the person who's sitting next to you. Look what it says. It says that Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously. He simply left things in the hands of the Father. Jesus knew it was wrong. Right? He knew that the Father saw that it was wrong. He knew that the Father knew that it was wrong, and that was enough for him. And he could trust that God would overrule it and that he would have the final say in his life. That he could take the single most unjust action in all of human history. And of course that's the way that they treated Jesus. Jesus trusted in the Father to have the final say over all of that. And he did. And as we've said before, if God can work Calvary together for good. If he can take the worst thing that sinful man has ever done against his kingdom and against God himself, if he can work that for good, then he can take that unjust situation that has come against you and he can be faithful to work that together for good as well. And here's where I know that some of you are starting to object and you said, that's not fair because Jesus could trust because he also could look ahead and he knew the glory that was ahead for him just on the other side of the cross. And I would answer to you, but so do we, don't we? We too know the glory that's ahead of us. That's our living hope. And that's Peter's point now, isn't it? Paul said to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, because Jesus lives in us, he can enable us to act as he acted when the world comes against us just like it came against him. Verse 24, him who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I love this because as this section concludes, Peter takes us right back to the cross. And it reminds us that not only did Jesus die for us, but that we also died with him. Right? We were redeemed from our aimless wandering like lost sheep, right? We were out there and we were starved and we were torn and we were bruised and we were bleeding, but we were healed from the sickness of all of that sin. We're safe now under the protection of our good shepherd and we can follow after him in his footsteps and with this new nature, it makes living for him and it makes living like him a real reality in our lives. 
Now, we can look around, and we might not like where we see that this whole thing looks like it's going. And yet we know how the story ends. And we know where it is that we end up. And we also know exactly how we get there. And so Peter's taken and he's reminding us of that. And he's filled this whole chapter with these striking images of how our lives now are as his followers. Right? We're babes feeding on the word. We're stones in the temple. We're priests at the altar. We're this chosen generation, a purchased people, a holy nation. We are the people of God. Right? We're strangers and we're pilgrims and we're disciples who are following after the example of Jesus. And we are sheep who are being cared for by the good shepherd. Our Christian lives are so rich and they are so full that it takes all of these comparisons and so many more just to show how wonderful it is. I want to close quickly by reading Psalm 34. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and for these precious promises, Lord, and these powerful pictures that Peter has provided for us this morning, Lord, that simply remind us of how rich we are in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that the, the trials and the, the challenges that come to us, Lord, from the verses in the second half of this chapter, Lord, would be overwhelmed by the blessings and the promises of the, uh, the first half of the chapter. And so, Father, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us as we face up and we bear up under whatever it is that we're each dealing with individually in our lives. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand up and let's worship the Lord uh, one last time together. <laughs>